0: Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? Great. Good to hear. I'm doing well as well. Thank you for asking. As Rod said, my name is Ryan. I'm uh, not on staff here. I'm the guy that they asked to preach on holiday weekends. (laughs) Oh, man, it's, it's funny, it's, but it's actually true. <clears throat> uh, as Rod said, we've been uh, journeying through the life of David. I'm excited about this morning because I think for the first time that I've ever preached, I think we're either on or ahead of schedule, which leaves me more time, which is awesome. So we're, uh, we've been journeying through the life of David Here at Crossroads, if you've been with us, and uh, we're finishing up the the series this week and then next week with Neil, and we're going to be in Psalm 24 this morning, and you might ask, why are we jumping to Psalm 24 this morning at the end of the series? Well, it's very simple. We preached through all the stories and the narrative that we had intended to preach through. And so Rod gave me the option of preaching whatever psalm I wanted to. So I chose Psalm 24. So that's why we're in Psalm 24 this morning. I love Psalm 24. It's uh, a psalm that is is familiar and dear to many of us. Uh, What I want to do this morning with Psalm 24 is I think a lot of times... At least in my life, I read psalms like this, and I read it in the context of my life, and I read it through the lens of my life, and what does it it mean for me, and how do I interpret this in in my experience? Uh, I want to look at Psalm 24 in the light of David's life, uh, in the context of David's life. One of the beautiful things that we have, that we've seen in this series is that with David, it's interesting, David is... Uh, one of these characters in the Bible that we have the, the most amount of narrative or story of any character in the Bible other than Jesus. So we've got the greatest amount of information about David's life than anyone else in Scripture other than Jesus. But not only do we have the information about the details and the circumstances of David's life, we also have this book called the Psalms, which gives us a window not only into the circumstances of David's life, but also the heart of David. What's going on in David's heart in some of these circumstances? And we don't know with all of the psalms and many of the psalms, we don't know exactly when David wrote them, but some of them we do. We have at least some indication of when David uh, wrote these, and so we can kind of correlate it to what's happening in his life at that point. Uh, Psalm 51, for example. The, the psalm where David uh, is crying out to God to forgive him, to cleanse him. Cleanse me, O God, that I might be clean. We know that this is written in res- in, during a time in David's life when the prophet Nathan uh, calls David out for his affair with Bathsheba. And it's in response to that that David writes Psalm 51. Psalm 63, we know D- uh, David wrote while he's writing... Uh, running through the wilderness. This cry of desperation and need for God is written while he's running through the wilderness. Now we have other psalms where we know, uh, or at least we can uh, with, with a certain amount of certainty correlate it with uh, a, a narrative or a story of David's life. Psalm 24 I believe and many commentators believe uh, is similar. Now it doesn't tell us right in the psalm, but taken from the context of the psalm, there's good reason to believe that this psalm, is. uh, we can correlate it to a specific time in David's life. Now what we want to do with this, uh, and what we've been trying to do with with this series throughout the, the summer, is not only learn about the man David, and that's one of the dangers that we have when we preach characters of the Bible like David, is is the danger is making moral comparison. We look at David and we look at the righteous aspects of his life and we try to emulate or replicate, well, David did this well, so let's try to do that. Or we look at the faults of David's life and we say, well, let's avoid those faults in our lives. And we, we bring it to moral comparison. And certainly there's some room for that. Uh, you know, Paul says in one of his epistles, he says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." So there's certainly there's some room for that. Uh, the other thing that we uh, can tend to do with this kind of psalm is read it as analogy. It says that David is a man after God's own heart. So David represents God, and so we read this, and it's sort of an analogy where David is symbolic of God and what God is like. Maybe I I have a harder time with that one. What I think we're supposed to do is just simply read this as a story, simply as a historical story, and in the story, look at how do we understand the character of God as revealed in David's life. Does that make sense? And so that's what we want to do. That's what we've been trying to do this summer. That's what we're going to try to do this morning is not just learn more about David, but as we learn about David, what we want to learn is more about the character of God and who Jesus is. That's the end goal of everything that we're doing here. So let me pray for us and then we'll read this psalm and see what we can learn about the character of God in light of David's life and this psalm. God, thanks for today, thanks for sunshine, thanks for uh, Sabbath, for Sabbath rest, thanks for this opportunity to come and gather and uh, to fellowship, to worship, and to learn from your word. Pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, among us, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that we might know you better. Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We uh, we like to, if possible, stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. So, if you would join me, Psalm twenty-four. No idea what number it is in your Bible, but it's about halfway through. It's right, right there. It's about right there in your Bible, halfway through. Then turn back a couple pages, you'll find Psalm twenty-four. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. This man, this person will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, as I said, I think that this psalm correlates with a specific season of David's life, and there's reason to believe, and uh, commentators will largely agree that this psalm was likely written at the time and in response to David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. If you remember that story, it's fallen in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm not going to do an extensive review of that. Brandon did a great job of preaching that this summer. But we need to remember that story just a little bit. But even before we go there, let's remember David's life for a moment. Uh, if you remember throughout this series, we've, we've met David, who was anointed at a young age, probably the age of maybe 12, 13 years old, by this man named Samuel. He was anointed to be king of Israel. The least of his tribe, the least of his brothers, so little and for, forsaken that his dad doesn't even count him as one of the brothers to, be com- to come and be considered for the anointing. And, and Samuel anoints this young boy to be the king of Israel. And he anoints David because he's rejected Saul As the king of Israel because of Saul's disobedience and his rebellion and his prideful heart. Now David, after he's anointed as king, as you will remember, instead of coming into the kingdom, he goes back out to the fields and tends the sheep for a while longer. He finally gets into the the throne to serve King Saul. And rather than being groomed to be the king, which is what we would expect to happen in the story, Saul gets jealous of this young man named David and tries to kill him, throws spears at him, forces him out of the kingdom. And this begins a slow and painful journey for David over the next decade or more. What we find in 1 Samuel is this painful downward spiral in David's life where it's one thing after the other goes wrong. Where he loses everything that he has. He uh, he ends up rather than being groomed for the next king, he's forced out into the desert where Saul is chasing him and trying to kill him in the caves. He's surrounded by worthless men. Scripture says uh, he has to act like a madman to save his life from the enemies. He loses his best friend. He loses his wife. At one point, he loses his entire family, and now even the worthless fellows around him want to kill him. So all throughout First Samuel, David's life is taking this slow and painful spiral downward, the circumstances of David's life. But what we also see in that process, as David is running through the caves and running through the wilderness and hiding for his life, we get a window into David's heart— And what we find is that in this time, in this season, in this wilderness season, God is testing David and purifying David. And David's heart is being conditioned. And what we find is that in the wilderness, David's heart becomes more like God's heart. That David becomes more like God. That David is purified and prepared, which is why the desert is often such a beautiful place rather than running from the desert, David embraces the desert. And it's in that time that he's purified and prepared and he's found, he's found worthy. In fact, you read through Psalm 119 and there's a very interesting, right in the middle of Psalm 119, David says a couple of times, he says, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to run through the wilderness because in the wilderness, I learned the law of God. In the wilderness, I learned to cling to God. And in this culture where we try to run from the desert and we try to escape the times of difficulty, David says, no, it was those times that were good for me. It was those times that shaped me and molded me. It was good for me to be afflicted. We find in David's life, when he is finally at rock bottom and loses everything, that he finally comes into his inheritance that God has promised him. I wonder, as David is running through the wilderness and the caves, is he even questioning the promises of God? Does he think he's even lost the promises of God? We don't know. But what we know is when David is finally completely broken down, completely desperate, it's at that point that God brings him into the kingdom. And he finally inherits the throne and sits on the throne first of Judah Uh, in Jerusalem, uh, in Hebron, and then in Israel. Uh, But here's what's very interesting. This turning point happens at the end of 1 Samuel, after Saul and Jonathan are killed, and then David is brought into the kingdom. And what's so interesting is not only do the circumstances of life change for David at that point, but his heart begins to change. And not for the good. What you find is that very quickly, when David comes into the comfort of the kingdom, he starts to lose focus. He starts to lose focus on what's important. He starts to lose his desperation for God. And he starts to rely on his own strength. Uh, We highlighted this several weeks ago. Rod highlighted this, this phrase Uh, that it, it describes when David comes in and how his kingdom begins to expand. It says, Then David accumulated for himself many wives and concubines. And yet, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when God lays out the righteous requirements for a king, it says this king is not meant, not supposed to accumulate a lot of wives, not supposed to accumulate a lot of wealth. He's supposed to have the law before him every day. And and as a matter of fact, that king is supposed to write out the law by hand so that he has it before him every day. And David starts to lose focus of this. And he starts to get drawn into the comforts and the safety of this world. When you fast forward uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 6 is another one of these instances where I think you see David starting to lose focus and rely on his own strength. It's in this story that David is bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. And David surrounds the ark with 30,000 foot soldiers. And there's great pomp and great circumstance. And he's carrying it on this brand new cart which is the way the Canaanites carried their gods. And he brings it into Jerusalem and the, 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 the cart begins to, to get unstable and this guy Uzzah, who's walking next to the, the ark apparently, puts out his hand to rescue the ark from falling over and Uzzah is killed instantly. Instant buzz kill. Party's over. They're celebrating and party's over. And there's a couple of interesting phrases there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Number one, it says that David is angry. He's angry that God just killed Uzzah. He doesn't say he's angry at God. He's just angry. But then there's this other phrase that says, at that moment, David is terrified of God. He's afraid of God. And I wonder if David has that in mind when he begins Writing Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. I wonder if David, as he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem, is he starting to think that God exists to display David's glory? Is he using the ark and the presence of God to display his own glory in this world? And is he losing focus that this is the God of all the universe? And then when he writes Psalm 24, he begins uh, reflective of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, it's very similar language. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wonder, have you ever thought about this phrase? In the beginning, God created. Have you ever stopped to meditate on that phrase? What's interesting, what I find really compelling is when you begin to meditate on that phrase, in the beginning, God created, your brain begins to hurt a little bit. You actually can't understand. We as human beings cannot understand what that phrase means. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The uncreated God. What that implies is that before anything that we know, anything that we can comprehend, before anything existed, time, space, thought, matter, before any of that existed, God. God. God existed in perfect perfection. So everything that we know has limits. Everything that we can even comprehend, the thought that is required to begin to think about God has limits. The thought that is required to start to think about God has an origin. So uh, the thought that's required to think about the God without origin has an origin. Do Do you see what I mean? In the beginning, God created. You can't even, we don't have within our capacity the ability to even begin to comprehend what this says about the character of the uncreated God. The God who is greater than, he's transcendent, he's holy, he's majestic, he's greater than anything we can even begin to comprehend. There's this phrase in Genesis 1 that I love so much. In Genesis 1 verse 16, um, it's in day four. On day four, God creates, it says that, God creates two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then it has this little phrase in Genesis 1, um, verse 16. Oh, and God created the stars. God created the stars. It's just a passing comment. Oh, God created the stars. If you, uh, my wife and I just got back from a vacation. Uh, We're out in a tent. Love going out in the wilderness. When you're away from the kind of the the light pollution of the city and you look up on a clear night and you see stars. You just see thousands and thousands of stars. And when you look up on a starry night and a clear night without any other lights around and you look up at the sky, what we can see with our naked eye is two or three thousand stars, maybe four thousand stars, several thousand stars, which is amazing. When you look at those stars, Those stars are part of a galaxy that we call the Milky Way. Now in the Milky Way, a galaxy is a cluster of stars. In the Milky Way, scientists estimate, I don't know how scientists estimate these kind of things, but they do. They estimate in the Milky Way, there's about 100 billion stars. Give or take a couple billion. About a, how do we know these kind of things? I don't know. About 100 billion stars. Now, the, gal, the, the Milky Way is one of many galaxies. So 100 billion stars in this galaxy. There's many ga, by many, I mean conservative estimate. There's about 10 billion galaxies. Okay? Again, rough estimates here. Multiply those two, simple math. Scientists will estimate the number of stars in the sky is about this many. I don't know what number that is. I think it's like a million, million, million stars, something like that, roughly a million stars in the sky. Put that in context. If you think about sand, I've got this jar of sand here. In this jar, theres um, I just pulled this out of my daughter's sandbox this morning. Uh, I counted this morning, and it was roughly about a million. (laughs) I was rushed this morning. Uh, Now, think about all of the sand on the earth. Think about the lakeshore of Lake Michigan. Think about Florida. Think about the deserts, the oceans, uh, lake bottoms, the, the total number of sand on the earth. Some scientists with way too much time on their hands in Hawaii did some calculations and they estimated the number of grains of sand on the entire earth to be 7.5 times 10 to the 18th power. It's a lot. Number of stars in the universe 10 times the 21st power. Now, this was amazing enough to me until I was studying again some more this week and I found this out. The the, the number of stars in the universe, 10 times 21 power, whatever number that is, the same number of molecules in 10 drops of water. The same number of molecules in 10 drops Drops of water. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that, as a matter of fact, the Psalms say that God knows the number of stars in the sky and He knows them all by name. He knows them all by name. This is the God that we serve. And it seems about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I'm not a church historian, just looking kind of landscape of the church and my own experience, it seemed about maybe 10 or 20 years ago there's a movement in the church to repersonalize God, where, where it seemed that for a while God was being reduced to some theological statements, some theological constructs, or some doctrinal statements. And God was just abstract ideas. And there's a movement in the church uh, by, by several authors and, and pastors to try to repersonalize God so that we can understand God. Not, and when I say that, what you have to understand is we, we don't change the character of God. God is not dependent on my understanding. I'm just talking about our understanding of God. And there's a movement in the church It seemed to begin to understand God as a person. Somebody that we are in a relationship with. And, and I love this. And it was so necessary and healthy in so many ways. But I wonder in the process, have we lost our awe and wonder of the uncreated God? Our awe and wonder of the God that knows the stars by name. Have we lost our awe and wonder of God was David beginning to lose his awe and wonder of God as he brought that ark back into Jerusalem? See, I think when we begin to uh, over personalize God i don 't like that phrase, but i can 't come up with a better one. When we begin to over personalize God, I think we lose a lot. We lose a lot. I was talking with some people this summer. Uh, who are just caught up in just incredible anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts. Uh, and I want to be gentle here because I, I fully believe there's medical conditions that lend themselves to this disposition. And I, I, I want to be really careful here. But it was just interesting talking with some people this summer that were just riddled with anxiety and fear and su- suicidal thoughts were just rampant and regular And as we were discussing, I just realized they had made God like them. And they couldn't reconcile a God who's still in charge in times of difficulty and trial. They couldn't recognize a God who's absolutely sovereign and in control when things get rough and difficult. A good God who created the storms. And what I find... As I was studying these past couple of weeks, what I found is that the people of God seem to hold on to this awe and wonder of God in very critical times in history. I find it compelling in, Job, in the book of Job when Job is going through this uh, difficult time and he, he begins to buy into the wisdom of his friends that... Uh, Maybe he's done something wrong, but then he starts to argue with God and say, God, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve this. I've kept my nose clean. I've done everything right. I don't deserve what you're giving me right now. And he tries to argue with God and wrestle with God. And I love God's response. After allowing Job to whine about his circumstances long enough, God responds, who is this? that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge. See, when we come to God and we try in our own strength to plead our case that we don't deserve what God is giving us, that's what God himself calls words without knowledge. And then God's response is, were you there in the beginning when I set When I put the stars in place? Were you there in the beginning? When I set the limits of the oceans and said, This far you may come and no further? Were you there? Do you know? Do you give me counsel? No, I'm God. And my plans are good. And God is not beholden to me to make sense out of my circumstances. Rather, He's God. And when we lose our awe, and wonder and we lose our understand our, our view of the magnificence of God we begin to lose the ability to find comfort in the times of trial and difficulty what I find interesting is when you continue in second samuel chapter 6 david it appears regains this Fear of the Lord. Because the second time that David brings the ark into Jerusalem, after he abandons it for a while, he brings it in a second time. And the second time David brings it in, he doesn't bring it in with this display of military might with 60,000 or 30,000 soldiers. Rather, the second time and the next time David brings the ark in, he brings it in with sacrifice. He brings in... Uh, as a matter of fact, was, he sacrifices every six steps. And I wonder if, if, if David at this point, this is what he's thinking, if he's remembering this God of all of the universe when he says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Now what does it mean to ascend the hill of the Lord? Again, we've got to put this in the context of David's life David is not talking about having an emotionally charged worship service here. That's not what he means here. He's not talking about having a spiritual high. He's actually using technical language here for the priest to come into the Holy of Holies. The priest, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies once a year. And they'd have to go through ritualistic cleansing to come in and offer sacrifice to make atonement for the people. And this once a year. And this is what it meant to come to ascend the hill of the Lord. More importantly, this is what it means to come into the presence of God. Who may come into the presence of God? Who may stand in the presence of this holy, magnificent God who created the whole universe? Who can do that? Can I do that? I wonder if David maybe isn't asking a question so much, but making a statement about the condition of mankind before a holy God. Who can can possibly stand before this holy God? David continues. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Now what does it mean, blessing? What what does David mean by blessing from the Lord? See, I think that when we bring God down to our level, when we try to make God like us, then we lose sight of what the blessing of God is. And I think that much of the church has bought into this lie that god's blessing for us is material wealth, comfort and safety that this is what god owes us and this is god's greatest desire for us is that we would have material blessings, that we would have material and physical comfort and safety. But for david, the blessing of god is simply god's presence. You see this elsewhere in David's life in Psalm 27, 4, just a couple of psalms later. David says, one thing that I desire, the greatest desire of my life is to simply be in the presence of God. That's my greatest desire. As he's coming into his kingdom and the promises of God are being fulfilled in his life, he's saying about this one thing, I don't want to lose this one thing. There's just one thing that I want to hold on to. That I might dwell in the house of my God forever. Who may do this? Who may dwell in the presence of God? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. And here we start to see the paradox of the gospel. We start to see the paradox and the tension in David's heart he uses this phrase that is so compelling. He says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. O God of Jacob. He doesn't say, O God of Israel. He doesn't say, O God of Abraham. He doesn't say, O God of all creation. He says, O God of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob. Well, Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a manipulator. Jacob, from a, from a very young age, tried to manipulate and deceive to get his blessing. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father. And then in times of difficulty, he ran away. And then when he's finally going to reconnect with his brother, so sheepish is he that he sends all of his uh, his, his people, even his wives and his kids out in front of him, and then he waits to see what's going to happen with them. And it's in this moment that God meets Jacob. That God meets Jacob. And in the presence of God, what does Jacob do? Rather than worshiping, rather than getting, rather than getting low, what does Jacob do? He continues to wrestle. He tries to manipulate God to get the blessing. And it isn't until God breaks Jacob and brings him low and brings him into complete submission that Jacob can receive his blessing. This is the God. The God who met Jacob. And this is the tension that we should feel in this psalm. Who can come into the presence of Almighty God? This is is David's desire. It's our desire as human beings. It's what we are created for. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter one and two, and this is what we are created for, is to find our our greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in our God, in our relationship with God. Now sin has broken that, and now who can come into his presence? I can't. I can't do it on my own. It only can happen if God meets me. If God comes down to my level. And it's at this point that we begin to understand the power and the magnificence of the gospel. Because friends, isn't this the very heart of the gospel? That the God of all creation, who desired to be in relationship with us, knew that there was nothing that we could do. No sacrifice, not even sacrifices every six steps. I wonder if David, when he's sacrificing every six steps, it's interesting, I, didn't, I can't find anywhere in the text where the law requires sacrifice every six steps. I wonder if David is doing this because he has such a desire to be in the presence of God, but he's terrified that if in these last six steps I did anything that was not acceptable to God, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. So every six steps, he's making atonement for himself and the people. Because he wants to be in the presence of God, but he knows he can't be in his current condition. And this is the power of the gospel. That for us to ascend, God came down. For us to be able to ascend into the presence of God, he knew that there was nothing that we could do and yet we have to be pure and right and holy before God. And so how does God make that possible? God came down. God came down in the form of a perfect man who did stand holy and righteous and blameless. And similar to how, Dave, how God crippled David, or Crippled Jacob, God crushed His own son. Crushed His own son, giving him that death blow that you and I deserved in the garden. Because Dave, God said to Adam, He said, "If you f- eat this fruit, I'm going to crush you. You eat this fruit, you're going to die." And we run that so quickly to spiritual death. Well, that's—I don't think that's what it meant. I think God was saying, "You eat this, and I'm going to crush humanity." And yet he loved us too much to crush us. And yet his word had to be fulfilled. And he crushed humanity through Jesus. So that we now can receive the blessing. That we now can come into the presence of a holy God. And not in fear and trembling like David did, but the, so magnificent is this story that the writer of Hebrews says that with confidence we come into the presence of God. With confidence, we come into the presence of a holy God. Paul picks up on this in Second Corinthians, and he says, Jesus became our sin. He didn't just take our sin on. He became our sin so that we could bear his righteousness, so that now I can stand before a holy God in righteousness and purity. I wonder if this is what David's thinking about when he writes this psalm. And this is not the end of the story, but if you read in the psalm, it is time for pause. It says, Selah. Time to pause. And it makes me pause and reflect. And it makes me ask a couple of questions. David, his desire was to ascend. His desire was to be in the presence of God. God. And it makes me reflect and question in my own life, is this my desire? Is this the greatest desire of my life? To be in the presence of Almighty God? Is this where I find my greatest satisfaction? My greatest joys? Or have we bought into the deception of worldly blessing? Have we just bought into these temporary pleasures that the world offers? And friends, they are so enticing. And they rope us in so easily, and they have the promise of grandeur and fame and comfort and safety, and in fact, they deliver for a moment. But you and I both know that at the end of the day, it leaves you empty and only wanting more. And you live this life long enough, and you chase after these worldly blessings and these worldly comforts, and soon... Maybe your life is surrounded by comfort, but inside you're broken and desperate and empty and alone because that was never meant to satisfy. Because only God is meant to satisfy. Is this my greatest desire? I felt the Lord convicting me many months ago as I felt this draw to some of this stuff, felt this draw to some material comforts and, and, and safety. And I'm not good, valid. I'm not saying that's wicked in itself. But I felt the Lord challenging me with this. He said, Ryan, would you forsake the pleasures of this world that my glory might be fully displayed in you? Would you do that? Would you forsake the comfort that this world promises that I might be glorified in your life? It also makes me pause and reflect on sin. And how do I respond to sin in my life? So I think when you begin to understand the depth and the power of this gospel message that a God who came down so that I could go up, so that I could ascend, when you begin to understand that Jesus became my sin, I think we begin to respond to sin differently differently. And again, I think that the church has bought in to a bit of a deception that God's grace is meant to make us comfortable in our sin. And I see so many Christians comfortable in their sin, embracing sin, embracing worldly, godless pleasure, and and saying this is grace. Friends, that is not grace. I want to just say gently and yet clearly if you are living in unrepentant sin this morning and there's no conviction in your life, if you are comfortable in your sin this morning, that is not the Spirit of God in you. That is not the Spirit of God making you comfortable. That is not grace. Friends, understand me. That is not grace. Grace does not allow us to be comfor- comfortable in our sin. Rather, the grace of God This same grace that allows me to appear in the presence of God with confidence causes me to hate my sin. To hate the sin that plagues me and pulls me down. Do you hate your sin this morning? Do you hate your sin this morning? For some of you, you might be wrestling with this nagging sin that seems to come back over and over and over again. And I want to just offer you a word of comfort and say, keep wrestling Keep wrestling because the very hatred of that sin is the spirit of God in you. And he will give you the power to overcome. And keep wrestling. Don't give in. Don't buy in to the wisdom of this age that will tell you that God's grace will allow you to be comfortable in that sin. But keep wrestling. Because Jesus overcame that sin. And so keep wrestling with it. Do we hate our sin? See, I think an understanding of the gospel gives us a deep and profound sense of gratitude for what Jesus did, and yet also makes me very uncomfortable in my sin. I love how David ends this psalm, and we'll cover this very briefly. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? Again, looking at David's life in context, Who is this king of glory? David was the king of glory. David was, in Israel's mind, he was the king of glory. David was the one that was going to usher in this age of peace and victory for Israel. And yet David says, who is this king of glory? It's not me. It's the Lord Almighty. He's the king of glory. He is the one that will bring in shalom that it's only under the reign and the supremacy of Jesus Christ that we know shalom. And I find this compelling in this political age where people are freaking out right now about the landscape in front of us. And indeed, no matter who wins this political election, it's going to be very bad for some people. There is no winner, I don't think, right now. But you know what, friends? It doesn't matter. Because there's a king on a throne who's in charge that will never get off his throne, that will, be, that will never cease to be king, and his reign brings peace and shalom. And in my life, I find peace and comfort and shalom, not when I try to manipulate this God, but when I come into submission to his reign and his rule in my life. Friends, some of you might be wrestling with a lot of anxiety and fear and guilt right now. And I want to encourage you to submit to the lordship of Jesus in your life. Because under the lordship of Jesus, that is where you find your shalom. So crossroads, and we can bring the band back up here. May we continue and increasingly be a people who live in awe and wonder of the God of all creation. And may this awe and this wonder of the God of all creation instill in us this deep desire to be in his presence. And may we be a generation who continues to seek the God of Jacob, the God who came down that we might ascend. Let's pray. God, thank you for making a way. Thank you, God, that we were not left to wrestle on our own, that we are, you didn't leave us on our own to convince you, to manipulate you, to prove ourselves. But you are the one who made a way for us to be, to ascend, to stand in your presence. And God, it is good to stand in your presence. God, I pray for anybody here this morning that is riddled with guilt, fear, condemnation. God, I pray for a greater revelation of your majesty and your nearness. The God of all creation who drew near. Pray, God, that we would be a people that, asc- that can ascend, can come into your presence. And that we would find our deepest and greatest satisfaction in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.